The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Most scholars agree that the South's chances of winning its independence by war after 1861 were slender. And almost all agree that if it were to happen, one requirement would be diplomatic recognition of the Confederacy by European nations. In that sense, the decisive theater of the war was not Virginia or Tennessee, but the drawing rooms of London and Paris where diplomats gathered, and the cabinet meeting rooms of Richmond and Washington where foreign policy was developed. We'll look at the Civil War today from an international perspective with Professor Howard Jones, author of Blue and Gray Diplomacy, on Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk. Haiti has been hit hard by a deadly earthquake. Destruction is everywhere. Tens of thousands are feared dead and hundreds of thousands are homeless without food, water, and basic necessities. Save the Children is on the scene, but your support is urgently needed to help us save lives. Please give as much as you can now. Call 1-800-SAVE-THE-CHILDREN or go online at savethechildren.org. You can even donate $10 right now by texting the word SAVE from your cell phone to 20222. Please give now. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you today from the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University. It's a spring day in 2010. If you're downloading this months in the future, wondering what you're listening to at the moment. Uh, and though we are coming to you from East Carolina University, this is not uh, the words of East Carolina or its staff or anyone other than me. I speak only for myself, accruing no liability for the institution, and I know my guest will likewise speak only for himself as well. The uh, week that has passed uh, has been a chance to look at a very interesting book that we'll talk about shortly. Uh, for those who have inquired, uh, thanks for your inquiries about my health. I had a, uh, a story to tell last week, but all is well, and everything is uh, back on track. And as always, uh, donations are welcome to the Civil War Talk Radio Book Fund, which could also be used for uh, uh, tranquilizers, I suppose, in the aftermath of last week's uh, health adventure, but uh, is is not a tax-deductible donation if you choose to send funds to Civil War TR at AOL.com. They'll be used in the ordinary course of events, at least for buying books to keep the show interesting uh, each week. Well, this week, uh, our subject is not the battlefield in uh, the traditional sense, as we look at uh, frequently on the show, but rather uh, 
the international dynamic of the Civil War. We're going to look at uh, how the war was perceived overseas and uh, what effects diplomacy had on the outcome of the struggle. Uh, for our guest, we have Professor Howard Jones, author of Blue and Gray Diplomacy, A History of Union and Confederate Foreign Relations, a very interesting new book. Uh, Dr. Jones, are you there? Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it very much. And uh, greetings from uh, Michael Palmer of our department. Uh, oh, okay. Lunch mentioned he, he uh, remembers uh, being invited to serve on a uh, doctoral committee at your institution at yes. Uh, yes, uh, the University of Alabama. Ago. That's right. He, he, had a, uh, he wasn't able to do so. He, he had a, a health issue and, and couldn't make it, as I recall, or at least mm -hmm. he didn't travel down. Well, in any case, uh, today uh, uh, we're talking about your work, and in particular, uh, blue and gray diplomacy. The, uh, the, the, the first thing that struck me about this book was the structure of it, which is that most of the time when you read about the diplomacy of the Civil War, uh, you tend to get a, a thematic approach. You, you get a chapter on the, uh, the Trent uh, affair. You get a chapter on... Uh, maybe the Alabama chapter on uh, Napoleon III in Mexico, uh, and so on. Uh, you've chosen to weave all these together in a, a, a chronological narrative, which helps the reader see things in a way that, that uh, other versions don't. How did you decide on this particular strategy? Well, my feeling has always been that history is, as the word says, a story. And I've always tried to, in my classes, provide a narrative to my classes. I've always believed that, uh, for example, when we're talking about the Kennedy administration, that once he, November 22nd, 1963, has come, then we're finished talking about Kennedy, and we move on to the next one, Johnson. And I think in the case of the Civil War, that if you stay with a thematic approach, you miss so many times the intersection of events. And if you take a look at what happens on a certain day in the course of the battles themselves, and then also notice that something significant happened right in that same timeline, and as you put it, the drawing rooms of Paris or England or something of that sort, allowing for a time span for the news to arrive across the ocean, I think you find that sometimes these events are more than coincidental, that one does indeed affect the other. And this is what I've tried to do. And uh, I think also it has an advantage in that it's, it's more fair to the actors on the scene if the reader knows that that person or those people are dealing with several events at the same time and that they all intertwine and it makes for a kaleidoscopic kind of series of events that really, I think, show the reader that policymakers really do have a lot of complex problems to deal with, that it's not just simply a matter of pulling out one event and looking at it by itself, and then you wonder, when you look at that, that, my goodness, why didn't he or she make the correct decision there? Yeah, it's very easy for us to, to play the Monday morning quarterback, especially, uh, particularly in military history, but in all forms of history. And I, I think it's a extremely good point that it, it's a lot harder to do than to uh, read about, and especially when we we oversimplify and, and put it into individual mm -hmm. uh, yep. tracks so. like that. Now, let me backtrack because I, I uh, usually open with this, and I, I 
don't know why I didn't think to do so here, but just ask you about your own background in terms of, of writing about the Civil War and your, your interest in it. Uh, what brought you to this topic? Well, I am in, as you know, American foreign policy, which gives me the privilege of dealing with the entire landscape of American history from really the uh, American Revolution to the present. And I've always been interested in the Civil War. I've done topics in the 19th century. I've moved to the 20th. I've come back to the 19th. And I did uh, a book earlier on Union in Peril that dealt with the interventionist crisis. And then I followed that a little bit later with a book on Lincoln and the Union diplomacy with the focus on slavery as a key issue. And then I was invited to do this volume in the series, in the Littlefield series of the Civil War era in North Carolina. And I couldn't turn that down. Um, it was a number of years ago that the contract was offered, and I've been working on this off and on for close to a decade, just on this book alone, but I mean with other things at the same time. But uh, I have always been drawn to it, and I've always wanted to see a volume out there that didn't just deal with Confederate diplomacy or didn't deal with just Union diplomacy, but to try to put them together and see where events intersect. And I grant that it certainly is a difficult process, but I also maintain that it's one way to, I hope, clarify the events during this time where you do understand the Union side and you do understand the Confederate side and you see how the two play against each other. And then you can imagine the problems that these provided for not only our policymakers, but for those in London and Paris in particular who are trying to make a decision on whether it's to their own interests to intervene in a war in a country that's torn apart by civil strife and that is really vulnerable to intervention. And it, it was really difficult for England and France, both countries, as you know, having a long history of acquisitive instincts and uh, trying to weigh the differing factors that are involved, and is it really to our advantage to step in? It was a touchy, very sensitive situation that I think carried enormous ramifications for the outcome of the war. Well, at the beginning of the war, you make the argument that both sides, or not both sides, both European nations, and really all European nations, viewed the conflict uh, really couldn't understand the conflict. They couldn't quite figure out what it is we were fighting about. Mm -hmm. um, on the one hand, it's slavery. On the other hand, both sides say it's not slavery. This, this was confusing for Europeans. Oh, I would imagine. I couldn't imagine uh, sitting in London and reading the papers, or in Paris and reading the papers, and hearing all the stories of people who know a little bit about what's going on, and they've talked about the tumultuous 1850s, how it seemed that every time you turned around there was some great sectional struggle that in one way or another involved slavery, something that touched upon it or directly involved it. And you can start listing the John Brown episodes and Dred Scott, and it just goes on and on and on. So finally the two are ready to fight it out. And I think... And it's difficult. You, you don't have polls, of course, but reading the newspapers and reading the private papers of the principal actors and a number of others who are not necessarily principal actors, the assumption without question was that this was about slavery. Well, when you took a look at the South, 
clearly the South wanted to emphasize, to its own advantage, of course, that it was not about slavery, that it was about states' rights. It was about an oppressive North that had been beating on the South for a long number of years over all kinds of questions, and now it was time to cleanse the so-called Republic of what the North had done to the Republic, and then to return to the grand republic that was envisioned by the founding fathers back in 1787 and really all the way back to the american revolution so it was states rights was really the key issue to a lot of people that's what they said what they believe we we don't really know what went on in the hearts of people but this is what jeff jefferson davis emphasized in his inaugural address and so did so many others in this period so the south immediately says it's really not about slavery well, I would imagine if I'm sitting in London and reading about that, i say, well, that makes sense. That's what they're going to argue. But then Abraham Lincoln counters with his inaugural address a little bit after Davis's inaugural and makes it clear then and afterward and over and over in the first parts of the war, it's not about slavery. And what people didn't understand is that he was walking a really thin tightrope in this period, a political tightrope in which he knew that the great bulk of Northerners, he assumed this, would not be willing to fight a war over slavery. It was as simple as that. But he also knew that there were people, he thought, he and Seward, his Secretary of State, William H. Seward, thought that there was a large number of quiet Southerners who were really loyal to the Union but were afraid to speak out in the face of the extremists of the period, the fiery secessionists and so forth, and that if he did not make this war about slavery, they might be more willing to go along with the Union when the right moment came. He didn't want to alienate these potential supporters, which, of course, turned out it wasn't that way at all, but this is what they thought. And then there was another factor, perhaps more important than one or one of the other two, and that was the status of the border states, those four slave states that had not joined the Union, Delaware, Kentucky, Maryland, and, and these, these states, just Missouri, these states had not seceded, but they seemed to be teetering in that way. And Lincoln had made the statement once that if Kentucky falls, there goes the Union. It, it was just that important to him, so he didn't want to alienate them and drive them out of the Union. And then when you consider that the first 18 months or so of the war, it was a real question who was going to win. The verdict just hung in the balance. And if the border states had gone with the Confederacy, that might well have been it. And so he could not make the war about slavery. So he emphasized that the war was about union. And to Europeans, that didn't make sense. The answer by many over there was, the solution they offered was, as Lord John Russell, the Foreign Secretary of England, said, let the South go. Why not let them go? The South will then be an island of slavery within a large number of people in the North who are anti-slavery, a lot of people in the South who are anti-slavery, and soon there will be a stream of escaped slaves who will be freeing themselves by simply walking across the borders, and sooner or later the South is going to have to recognize that it's got to give up slavery. It may take a longer time but it's much better than all the blood and treasure of fighting what they consider to be a senseless war. 
and senseless not only in this in the understanding the way they saw it that union was so vague i mean what does this mean why is that worth the blood but the whole idea of the north can't defeat the south the south has 11 states the south has millions of people it has all this area there is no way that the union can win so the outcome as far as the british and the french were concerned and i'm sure a lot of the other people as well is that this is a fait accompli and it was an interesting argument that developed in that the british looked at this and compared it to the american revolution except they turned the actors backward they made the north the oppressors which equated them with their own british leaders back at the revolutionary era and then the south were the people who simply wanted independence that's all they wanted and they were equated with the american colonists and it was a matter of uh, self-determination so why not let the erring sisters go we do that in europe we divide areas we try not to have wars over all kinds of things like this and of course that was not always true but that's what they were arguing and so Russell, I believe, never, and a lot of others, never really fully grasped what was so real. What was it about the Union's argument and the South's argument that they had tried every last thing there was, and they finally had to resort to the final solution of war? It just made no sense to them the way they saw it. So they they perceived that uh, as you said this was it was a fait accompli that, that the confederacy was bound to win its independence yes uh that, that uh if if they thought that then I, why not recognize uh, the south immediately well there was always that uh guy named william h seward as secretary of state who engaged in a policy that has been called i think quite aptly by a historian desperate diplomacy and that was that um, he would warn them, this is, and of course he's, d- he's doing it because he has talked with Lincoln about this, but Seward was the spokesman. And Seward had a reputation for being an Anglophobe. He had a reputation for belittling the British. He had a reputation for being willing to fight at a moment's notice. And the image was that he was hot-tempered and loose-talking and so forth. And he had warned, if you extend recognition, that means war. Because this is a domestic conflict. It is a civil war. It is not a war, so to speak. It is between Northerners and Southerners. And you have no business even discussing the idea of intervening in your rooms or wherever else you sit around and discuss foreign policy. This is not your business. So... That's enough, at least for the time being, to keep the, the European powers out. But at the very start of the war, the British do declare uh, neutrality, which has all kinds of implications. Yes. Uh, this was... Lincoln had real a real problem in dealing with the foreign policy, clearly. He wanted really to adopt... He didn't want to, but he ended up adopting a dual approach to this war. On the one hand, he would call it a civil war, a domestic conflict. It's an internal affair. No one should get involved, which then gave him power as president of the United States, guaranteed the republic, a republican form of government. And on the other hand, he wanted it to 
the what was going on to give him the power as commander of in chief of the American Armed Forces to do whatever it took to put down the war itself and to keep the British and the French at bay and all the other powers as well. He announced that he was going to, as he put it, put on foot a blockade. Well, he let's, didn't let's actually install it at the beginning. He, it was more of a warning, but it was taken by the British to mean that he had already instituted a blockade. And so the British, by international law, did what they were supposed to do, as did the French, Spanish, and others. They came back with, we are declaring neutrality. Well, when you bring the word blockade into your vocabulary, you are saying this is a war. And Vettel, one of the leading French or Swiss theorists and writers and so forth of earlier years, and they were following his rules of international law and so forth, Vettel had made plain that a civil war is no different from a war. And if you declare a blockade, neutrality follows, and then the real problem was that when you declare neutrality, you also bestow belligerent status on the entities that are involved in that war. Which We're going to take that, a short break here. Sure. If I can interrupt you for a second, Howard. That's fine. Uh, we'll take a short break uh, with that idea of belligerency and come right back. This is Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Cotton is king. You dare not make war upon cotton. We'll see how that worked out when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Are you ready to go green? You've asked, and we've heard you. Introducing the Green Talk Network. Environmental topics are at the forefront of our society, and the Green Talk Network is here to keep you up to date on the latest trends and innovations for the eco-conscious lifestyle. We'll help promote a variety of ideas on the environment, from global warming issues to how you can become more eco-friendly in your daily activities. Be a part of the solution, not the problem. Visit thegreentalknetwork.com and tune in to help spread the green. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Howard Jones, author of Blue and Gray Diplomacy, A History of Union and Confederate Foreign Relations. In our first segment, we talked about the importance of foreign relations and the possibility of recognition of the Confederacy, and looked at some of the uh, initial factors, the European uh, bewilderment, perhaps, at what this war was about, uh, a war that clearly seemed to be a war between the slave South and the free North, yet was greeted by both sides in America with declarations that it was not about slavery, uh, surely mystifying to European observers. And also the European assumption that the South would surely win, uh, just as the 
American colonists had defeated the, the British in the revolution, uh, surely the South would win its independence the same way, uh, trying to uh, that it would be impossible for the North to subdue an even larger area than the original 13 colonies uh, with with relatively fewer resources or, or less preponderance of resources than Britain had over America. Um, so it is not surprising that uh, at the beginning of the war we see uh, French, uh, British and later French neutrality declared, which uh, leads to a, a state of belligerency. And that's uh, where we got um, belligerency is not the same as recognition of, of nationhood, but it does convey certain uh, rights and privileges. Uh, how, how did belligerency work? Yeah, that is correct. Um, when The first thing I think that was so crucial was that by bestowing belligerent status onto the South, you have actually created an entity. You're not an independent nation. You're not that at all. But when you become a belligerent which then meant that you're no longer a, re a rebel, you're no longer possibly guilty of treason and so forth. That's the argument they would make, and this just really upset Seward and the rest of the people in the, in the Union. You could now engage in privateering, and we could do that even though there had been the Declaration of Paris of 1856 that had outlawed privateering. Well, that was only to signatory nations, and the U.S. had never been a party to it. So the South could engage in licensing merchant vessels and whatever and allowing them to become part of a fledgling navy. And this meant that uh, you could raid, you could pillage, you could find refuge in foreign ports and so forth. And then, of course, what this meant was you could gather prizes, carry them in, and all that kind of thing. You also could um, sign contracts to buy war goods. Uh, you could sign contracts with foreign nations to build ships, as long as they were not warships that were equipped and armed in the country in which you're building them, i.e. England. The British had a Foreign Enlistment Act that uh, made plain that they were going to keep their citizens from getting involved in any kinds of wars. And one of these was that you cannot, in various shipyards in England, you cannot build warships and arm and equip them. And, of course, the way they got around that was to build them and then sail the ships out and then arm and equip them outside of British waters. But what you did then was to bestow a certain, certain status onto the South. Now, that was one major step away from recognition. This upset the Union because it looked like the British were taking the direction with the natural outcome being recognition. If you achieve recognition, then you, of course, have become a nation. And when you're a nation, you have every right any nation has, which means primarily the signing of commercial treaties and perhaps more important, military treaties. You could actually find allies in the war against the Union. That's what they were shooting for. Do you think Lincoln made a mistake in declaring a blockade? Could he have, have closed the ports to foreign traffic and achieved the same purpose without pushing Britain into neutrality? He tried that. He announced that he was closing the southern ports. And this created all kinds of confusion, because the British were arguing that you cannot do this. We have the right as a foreign nation to enter any of these ports and so forth. And uh, it created a real problem in the sense that, as the British minister tried to explain to 
the Americans during this time, that you've created a situation in which there are no rules. If you announce a blockade, we at least know what the rules are. We know how to behave and where to draw the line and so forth. And so Lincoln toyed with that and then finally gave up on it. It just simply wasn't going to work and then moved into the realm of a blockade. And then the real question becomes, is it a paper blockade or an actual blockade? Well, in fact, there was no way to argue that it was an actual blockade because you're talking about closing off well over 3,000 miles of coastline with countless numbers of inlets and harbors and coves and so forth that wound all the way around the south, clearly right down to the top of Mexico. And then, of course, you could have the uh, what did happen, you could have goods brought to the Mexican ports and then carted overland into the Confederacy. There was, in short, no way to close off the South. But the British, after much debate, found it in their own interests to simply say, we recognize the blockade as effective. And effective meant by international law that there was some sign of danger if you dared challenge the blockade. And they did not want to challenge the blockade because they knew that that meant war. And one thing that was always at the back of Palmerston's mind, at the front of his mind, really, was that the Union had steel-hulled vessels, that it had, I mean, ironclads. And the British were about to get these, perhaps, but they didn't have them at the time. And this was something that, uh, at least not anything that would be useful in the sense of crossing the ocean and having all the logistic problems. They didn't want to get into a war with the Union, and that's what they were afraid of. Now, the blockade, as you say, was at first, uh, could have been classified as a paper blockade, that is ineffective and, and not binding on foreign powers. Um, when we talk about the blockade, the, the main commerce of the South, the main export of the South certainly is cotton. Right. And there's a, a strong belief before the war that cotton is king, that uh, cotton will will you know, dominates the world economy in terms of of a valuable commodity. I suppose the way oil does today, mm-hmm. uh, and and thus the South holds the trump card economically for the whole world. Um, how, how how does cotton affect diplomacy in 1861 and and through the war? Well, the assumption was, and Davis and the others had not thought this out. There's no question that they didn't really develop a a clear strategy on how to use cotton as leverage. They simply assumed that cotton was king. And there were many people who bragged about the British will not dare go against king cotton, and the French won't do this and so forth. That They need cotton so much that it is the foundation of the whole British Empire and the French, and the list just went on and on and on. But what they didn't take into consideration was that Unfortunately for the South, fortunately for the Union, the South had had two bumper crops in the two years before the war broke out. And the result was that the British and the French had heavy, heavy surpluses of cotton. So any kind of cutoff in cotton really did them a favor as far as prices and sales and so forth went. The French were not able to find in any effective way other sources of cotton, but the British did. The cotton that they found in various parts of the world was not of the same quality as that produced in the South, but it was still enough so that when it did 
when the British did run a little bit low on supplies beginning about a year, year and a half into the war, they could depend on other sources. And so cotton never really had that impact. And then there was also the attitude that Southerners had about this, that they were more or less bragging that the British will not dare go against us because of cotton. And there was always the rumor that the, that the South was going to institute an embargo. There never was a formal embargo, although there might have been some on individual bases and so forth. But this whole attitude alienated the British, and that didn't help uh, Southern relations at all with the British. Now, you say there was no formal embargo, but th- there was no outpouring of cotton in 1861 to try to to secure arms and gold and other things that the South would need. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least my impression has always been that, that they, the South essentially did hold on to cotton with the hope it would go up rather than uh, get it all out quick. Oh, yeah. There's no question. Uh, what I mean by that is that there was a debate in the Confederate Congress about whether or not to institute a a formal embargo. There never was that embargo in that Mm -hmm. sense, but there were a lot of individual cases where they did this. And then, of course, I think what this does show is that the uh, blockade was becoming increasingly effective as the war went on. And then, as you know, the Union and others would burn cotton or they would make sure that uh, the South was not able to use it. Or in some instances, there were cases of cotton being given to the British so that it would stave off any choice of any chance of intervention in this period. Hmm. So, so that did not uh, push them in. Um, no. The the one thing, if, if people know anything about the diplomacy of the Civil War, the one incident everybody thinks of is the Trent Affair, uh, December eighteen sixty one. Uh, was that as important as most other books make it out to be? Tell, describe it briefly and tell us what you think of, of, of its import. Well, what it amounted to was a, an incident in the war in the sense that, and I think sometimes it has not given its due on how important it was, because if this had exploded in a war between Britain and the Union, clearly the South would have had and I think you'd have to put quotation marks around it, the British as an ally. They would not have been formally an ally, but if the British had been fighting the Union, it's clear that this would have helped the the South. There was no question. What it amounted to was you had two men from the South, commissioners, James Mason and John Slidell, and they were going to go to England and to France, and then the person on the continent would talk to other powers as well about seeking recognition. That was the the bottom line. And the word got out down in the Caribbean when they took passage out of the south and went by way of Havana, and they were going to book passage there to get to Southampton and England and so forth. The word got out that this is what they were doing, that they had booked passage on some ship. It turned out to be the Trent, which was a British mail steamer. And they came through the Bahamas, and there was Captain Wilkes from the U.S. Navy. San Jacinto, named after the battle in the Mexican War and so forth. And Wilkes, an elderly man in the Navy who felt he had never gotten his due. And he wasn't even supposed to be in those waters. His orders were to be elsewhere, but he acted on his own because of what he had heard. And he stopped the ship, and he seized the two men. And he 
didn't take the ship in as a prize, which he could have done. There was no massive search done of the ship, and if that had been done, they might well have found some dispatches that Mason and Slidell had had hidden on board the Trent with the connivance of the captain. And so the result was that um, he took the two men off, and he consulted his various law books, and I don't know where he got this, but uh, he searched them, he said, and came up with the conclusion that they were the embodiment of contraband, that they were the human beings, but they were still contraband that was capable of being seized, that they were dispatches in a sense, and so forth. And he took them off, and they were imprisoned. And this, of course, just raised the roof. The British complained about this being a violation of neutrality, that this was a violation of British honor, that besmirched the flag and so forth. And there was a lot of swirling around and talk and counter-talk and threats and counter-threats and so forth. And finally, the British arranged and made an arrangement that allowed Lincoln to have a face-saving way out of this, the British said that surely you did not give him the orders to do this, that Wilkes had acted on his own. And so if Mason and Slidell are returned and there is an apology and so forth, we can resolve this. And Lincoln, after much debate around Christmas time of 1861, decided that that was the way to go. And then Seward ended up writing a note that basically was a camouflage for the concession that the Union had to do and basically said that uh, we had won a major diplomatic victory because the British had now recognized freedom of the seas and a lot of other smoke and so forth to make it look good. Now, there was a certain irony yes, there sir. since the British had fought uh, in, in 1812 against us on, on just the opposite grounds that they could yes. take people off of ships. Well, it shows one of the cardinal rules, you want to call it this, of diplomacy, that uh, international law means whatever the prevailing power at the time wants it to mean. If you look at the arguments, as you said, in 1812, they're turned inside out when it comes to the Civil War. Each side takes the other side because it is to that side's advantage. And the same kind of thing happens in World War I. The arguments are just turned the way that the prevailing power wants the international law to read so that that power can gain an advantage from it. And I think the real thing about the Trent that was important, again, was that point that if they had gone to war, the Union and the British, this would have worked enormously to the South's advantage. And it sent a signal, I think, that I'm not sure was really grasped, that the British did not want to go to war with the Union. And when Palmerston came out of this with the idea that he had prevented war with the Union, that gave him even more stature within England, and he could make foreign policy more on his own. And if anyone dragged his feet on intervention, it would have been Palmerston. If it had worked to the British advantage, he would have been willing, I think, to do something, but it never quite worked to the British advantage. We'll explore that point further in just a minute. We're talking today with Howard Jones, author of Blue and Gray Diplomacy. This is Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. 
where the world comes to listen and talk. Did the Emancipation Proclamation turn the tide against recognition by European powers, or is that a myth of the previous generation of historians? We'll ask our guest today on Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk. Love old cars and want to know more about them? Thinking about investing in your dream car but don't know if it's a smart decision? Want to fix up that classic that's just rotting away in your garage but don't know how to get started? You need Resto Talk. Every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific, Melvin Benziquin, the restoration expert, will address these topics and more and invite prestigious guests from the automotive industry to answer all of your questions and provide you with great quality information. Get your motor started with Resto Talk on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking this afternoon with Howard Jones, author of Blue and Gray Diplomacy, A History of Union and Confederate Foreign Relations. It's a very interesting and readable narrative of foreign policy during the Civil War, especially uh, the, the central theme being the attempt of the Confederacy to secure foreign recognition and the effect that would have had. The, uh, and that really brings us up the central question of this whole era, which uh, let me put to you uh, in terms of your opinion. What was the closest moment the South came to, to getting recognition from Britain or France? And how close was it? I think there were two close points. The second one was closer than the first. And I, the first time came with the British, and the second time came with the French. And if you want to date them, I think you'd, you'd look for the British high point of interest in intervention coming in late 1862, which, of course, then places that dalliance in intervention with uh, the Battle of Antietam and the Emancipation Proclamation. And we know the standard story that uh, Lincoln had decided in the summer of 62 to turn the war into one force against slavery, to raise the morale of his people and do whatever he could as commander-in-chief to bring this war to an end. So he was going to make it that. And then Seward talked to him about wait for a battle, a victory, so that we don't, we don't become the objects of scorn, that we were so desperate for a victory that we even resorted to causing slave revolts, stirring up insurrections and so forth. And so Lincoln waited, and the time came at Antietam, and with this razor-thin victory, the Lincoln administration announced the Preliminary Emancipation Proclamation. And the story, the standard one, is that this just stopped the British in their tracks on considering any form of intervention on the side of a slave-holding power, that kind of thing. Well, that's true to a point, but if you look at the events again in narrative form, you find that the first reaction that lasted for 
a large number of long days for the Lincoln administration was just scorn of and criticism and charges and charges of look what Lincoln is doing. This proclamation has no moral fiber. It does not free slaves everywhere in one big move. It is so hesitant. It is so self-serving, and what it's trying to do is stir up slave revolts, and what it did was add to the image that the British and the French were developing daily when they read about the war, that it was a horrible war. It was an atrocious war. It had sunk to a new level with Antietam, and they had seen Shiloh and, and the blood fest and the photos that Matthew Brady had made in the engravings, and they had seen war firsthand, even though they were sitting at home, they could see pictures and read descriptions. And now Lincoln has added to this. What he's going to do, according to those who were criticizing him, is stir up revolts that will become a racial war, and it'll just destroy the whole continent. And then it will have a spillover effect in affecting the Atlantic economy, just destroying everything. And this lasted for quite some time, and then finally people began to realize that maybe this document wasn't exactly what they wanted, but it was better than none. And when the Union wins this war, they're beginning to believe this, is, this just might well happen. Slavery is going to be a casualty of the war anyway. And so in that sense, I think the, the question of slavery plays a role but not the way it usually did. And this, this really surprised Lincoln that the reaction was this way. Well, the British had been considering mediation. And in August of 62, and here again, if you place the events together and the way they happened, you see all of this kind of coming together in the summer and the fall of 62. Because in August of 62, Robert E. Lee had won a major battle, second bull run and was getting ready to launch a raid into the north. And the first reaction after Second Bull Run in London with the British was, it's time now for mediation. Certainly the Union now has it clearly made to them that they are not going to win this war. And if Lee had known that this mediation offer just about was on, his way, on its way, he might well have held back. But when word came that uh, back to London that Lee had decided he was going to pursue the battle in the north, the British said, well, let's wait. We know he's going to win some more battles. This will make our case more conclusive. And then, of course, Antietam came. And so this kind of set things back. Well, that was very close at that point. The other time comes with France, Napoleon III who I think has not received all the attention he needs. I'm not saying that it's a glorious form of attention, but Napoleon III had always held back from acting until the British acted first. But he had this vision that the French had had for a long time, and I say a long time in the sense that it goes all the way back to the outcome of the French and Indian War in 1763. The French had had an empire in North America of sorts, and then lost it at the Treaty of Paris proceedings of 63. And one of the constant themes throughout this period, right up to the time of Napoleon III and perhaps even afterward, was to somehow regain a French empire in the New World. 
and his scheme was to implant a monarch of his choosing, the Archduke Maximilian of Austria. A deal was worked out. He would then become the king of Mexico in the midst of a raging civil war. And with French sponsorship and French support, he would maintain the monarchy there against the rebellious forces. And then this would be the nucleus of a reverberations that would spread throughout the Latin Americas. They would all stop thinking about republicanism, according to theory, and they would all become part of this new monarchical rage in North America. And his scheme, if you read what he was talking about, it was even called the Grand Design for the Americas, was to build an empire that stretched from the Gulf Coast all the way over to the Baja in California. And he was also going to try to acquire Texas. And at one time, some of the people involved in this, and it wasn't a large number, but Napoleon was at the center, was talking about acquiring Louisiana. In other words, you're going to restore the French Empire and even expand upon it from before. Now, how do you get there? Well, he was going to get there by extending recognition to the Confederacy. And then the Confederacy, as payment, would become a buffer state between the defeated Union and his dream of this French empire that would then, of course, expand to include the Atlantic and upset the balance of power in Europe and all these kinds of things. And the Confederacy would kind of ward off the Union. Now, did the Confederacy recognize that it might well happen that... Um, it might end up hurting them in the long run, that the whole republic might be in peril. Would he simply allow the Confederacy to exist? I think it was very much like um, Winston Churchill in World War II when he said that we've got to ally with the Russians, and sometimes you've got to walk with the devil to get to the other side. And it's pretty clear from Confederate papers and so forth that they knew that Napoleon was a threat and would be after the war was over, but we've somehow got to win this thing first. And if that's what it takes, that's what we'll do. Why didn't uh, it, uh, go ahead? That, that, that's my question. It, it, in a, if this were a, a situation comedy, someone would say, "That's so crazy, it just might work." Yes. Uh, why didn't uh, the Confederates and the French go for it? I think the same. Well, the Confederacy was ready to go for it to get recognition, but Napoleon pulled back, and I think for the same reason that the British pulled back, they didn't want war with the Union. The Union had made plain, Seward had said over and over, when this war is over, we're coming down there. And it was pretty plain that this, as the days went by, it got into 1864 when Maximilian arrived, and then a little bit after that you had Sherman's armies marching through the south and taking Atlanta, and then going on the march to the sea, and it became very plain to Napoleon that the game's over that the Union's going to win, and if the Union wins, he might not only face the Union in the period after this, but he might also face a reunited Union with the South back in place. And so he then began dissembling his grand dream and left Maximilian behind, and the man was so naive as to believe that he could still stay on the throne, and he ended up being captured by the Republican forces and executed. So that uh, clearly not uh, not something that, that obviously did happen, but but could have um, one of those cases of what if? Yes. What if? 
one of the things you say in your book, and, and since we're getting near the end, I don't want to omit this. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you make the statement in your, your uh, conclusion that the Civil War demonstrates the dangers of foreign interference. Uh, and you talk about uh, the, when when you don't quite understand the conditions, why countries are fighting, why the people is fighting internally, there's there's a danger in interfering. And the French and British, uh, I, I took away from your writing, were, were wise ultimately, saw their own self-interest was not to intervene. Um, when you wrote this, uh, and you said this took over 10 years, so obviously you did not write it in the last six months, we'll say, uh, were current events uh, resonating in any way with what you were writing? Uh, were you thinking of them? Do you think there's an application? They were. I, I try not to write in that sense, but um, you also want to relate the past to the present as much as you can, but not in the sense of telling the reader this is the way it is, but laying it out so that the reader, I think, can draw his or her own conclusions. I, I teach a course on the U.S. Vietnam. I do a lot in American foreign policy on all the interventionist cases throughout its history, and Knowing some of the things that I've taught, it, there's no way I could write it without always keeping this at the back of my mind. And you have, I think it's in the nature of civil wars that it just tears apart a country and makes it vulnerable to intervention. And if you've got uh, countries out there that are willing to step in and act in their own interests, then this can well happen. But what happened was that you had two countries that finally realized that it was not in their own interest to dare challenge the Union and decided that it was better to just pull back. And and you have the ultimate irony, I think, in all of this, the greatest dilemma that the Confederacy faced, and that was that if it was going to win recognition, it had to win a decisive battle. And yet, to win that decisive battle, it had to have recognition that would give it its military and economic aid and so forth, and could never convince the British and the French to take that big leap. They just wouldn't do it. It, it did seem ironic that, that uh, as you said, when the Confederates were doing well, the British were leaning toward recognition, uh, but the response, rather than, than to, to a Confederate victory, was not to say, ah, they've won, let's recognize, but rather, ah, they've won, we can wait a little longer now because they're still winning. And on that ironic note, uh, as the music comes back in, unfortunately, uh, we reach the end of our hour. But, uh, Howard, thank you very much for being thank on the show today. Thank you very much, Jerry. I appreciate it very much. And listeners, you'll, you will want to get a copy of Blue and Gray Diplomacy, A History of Union and Confederate Foreign Relations. It's from the University of North Carolina Press. Howard Jones is the author. And listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Mm-hmm.